welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we focused a lot of attention in recent months on the China-Africa illegal wildlife trade, especially on the issue of ivory in China. Today, though, I thought it would be a good idea to shift the focus from ivory markets in China to Africa's savannas, where all of the killing is actually taking place. So to do that, we've invited a very special guest. Uh, Damien Mander is a soldier-turned-environmental activist who fights on the front lines of the poaching war in southern Africa, a lot of times in Zimbabwe, in South Africa. Uh, before he founded the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, he served in Australia Special Forces as a sniper and diver. He did 12 tours in Iraq as a mercenary, where he also managed the Iraq Special Police Training Academy. Even though he spent most of his adult life in the military and also said that he made a lot of money in private security, he decided to leave and dedicate himself to the protection of animals uh, in Africa. Uh, so, but before I go down too far into his background, I think the best way to introduce Damien is to listen to a brief expert excerpt from a powerful TED Talk that he gave back in 2013 in Sydney, Australia. My story begins in Zimbabwe with a brave park ranger named Orpheus and an injured buffalo. And Orpheus looked at the buffalo on the ground and he looked at me. And as our eyes met, there was an unspoken grief between the three of us. She was a beautifully wild and innocent creature. And Orpheus lifted the muzzle of his rifle to her ear. And at that moment, she started to give birth. As life slipped from the premature calf, we examined the injuries. Her back leg had been caught in an eight-strand wire snare. She'd fought for freedom for so hard and so long that she'd ripped her pelvis in half. Well, she was finally free. Ladies and gentlemen, today I feel a great sense of responsibility in speaking to you on behalf of those that never could. Their suffering is my grief is my motivation. Damien Mander now joins us on the line from the South African-Mozambican border. Damien, welcome to the podcast. Gentlemen, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and we appreciate the time that you're taking to, to join us. I'd like to start our discussion with two competing narratives that we've seen over the past year and get your sense from this. So narrative number one is that 2015 uh, was yet another record for the number of wildlife, large animal wildlife, particularly rhinos and, and elephants, who were killed, particularly by the mechanization of the poaching industry. So that is, the militaries are involved using, uh, you, know, you know, heavy weapons. Uh, and, and again, the tragedy of the deaths that we've seen is just incomprehensible. And another terrible year was put down on the record books in 2015 with the mass, ex the mass killing of these animals largely for the markets in Vietnam, China, and Southeast Asia. The second narrative that we're hearing is that the courts in Tanzania, the courts in Kenya, uh, are handing down much stiffer sentences. There does seem to be a growing awareness that these animals, once they are dead, they don't come back. Uh, in China, there is real movement on the political side now to ban the ivory trade. And so things seem to be happening in very positive Senses and and so we're seeing two competing narratives here, and it's hard to tell if if progress is being made from your vantage point on the ground. Uh, 
dealing with the poachers and the, the wildlife protection services, what are you seeing and which one of those two narratives do you think we should believe, if any? Yeah, okay, very interesting. They're, they're two very different dynamics, uh, being uh, elephant poaching and, and also rhino poaching. Uh, elephant poaching is, is much more widespread because we see a much much larger uh, number of key range states that have, in, in some cases, quite huge populations of, of elephant. And because they're quite dispersed, they're, they're much more vulnerable. Whereas when you look at the rhino, on the other hand, it's, it's a much more focused uh, issue. Uh, and South Africa having 75% of the world's remaining rhino and Kruger National Park, one park, one reserve having 40% or up to 40% of the world's rhino, it's, 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 it's very focused. So we can, when we start to look at the problem, we can start to look at how we can deal with that problem uh, on, on a much more manageable scale. Uh, whereas with the elephants, we, we do see regional success and regional failure. Uh, and us as an organization, we, I, I established this organization to, to do one thing, and that is to focus on the conservation requirements at the very front lines uh, of, of these wars. And we target um, protecting uh, the hardest animals to protect, elephant and rhino. Uh, and the reason they're the hardest animals to protect is because poachers are willing to go to the greatest lengths to kill those animals. So when we develop and implement a strategy that protects those animals. Everything else in that ecosystem is, is being looked after. And when you measure that against the, the big global issues that we're facing, deforestation, global warming, human population growth, the most immediate thing we can do right now today is to protect what we have left. And that's why, for us, uh, we, we don't try to do a lot of things. We just do one thing. We try to stand between these animals and the people that are trying to exploit them. Now, um, Damien, uh, so, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Um, I wonder if you, if you could unpack that just a, a little bit. So, you know, kind of the one of the one of the weird contradictions around this debate is that we tend to get two different contradictory ideas of of who a, a poacher actually is. You know, so you have this idea that these are impoverished African people who don't have a choice. Um, and then you know are, are driven by poverty and the high the high price created by Chinese demand to 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 poach. The other view is that they have night vision goggles and fly around in helicopters and are very like very tech um, savvy no, and you know essentially like like special ops forces hunting you know kind of rhinos and elephants. Um, so you face these people on you know kind of on the actual battlefield on the ground. I wonder if you could unpack for us a little bit who like how do you see them and like who are these poachers actually? We, uh, we're not running around out there trying to stop the person who's trying to put food on the table. Uh, we are going out trying to stop the militarized uh, version of poaching gangs that we're dealing with. And we're dealing with very sophisticated, very determined, uh, and very experienced people on the ground. And when you go into a place like Mozambique uh, and, and Kruger border, you go into the local communities, you see... Uh, armed civilians that cross through familiar territory protected by the local population that conduct raids and ambushes against larger, uh, more regular but less mobile forces such as special operations, uh, national parks departments. They then retreat back uh, across familiar territory with, with rhino horn or, or ivory, still protected by the local population. That's the definition of guerrilla warfare. And we are uh, at the very front lines there. And... For these people to be recruited into these, these types of ranks, 
it 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 it, it quite often does start, start off as, as desperation or hunger. Mozambique is one of the poorest countries on the planet, and I won't deny that. But it, it, it very quickly escalates uh, into a cycle of, of greed, peer pressure, maintenance of momentum, a certain lifestyle that they uh, that they, they they start living: fast cars, the big houses, the fancy clothes, uh, the, the, the smartphones, and then they they're in this cycle. And the problem for us is what we need to look at is the entry level into into the criminal networks for these people. These guys aren't growing up picking pockets. And, and, and breaking into cars. These guys are entering uh, a criminal life by picking up a heavy caliber rifle and crossing an international border and going up against armed forces. So when the rhino run out, or if the rhino run out, or, or the, the, the effort to go and get a rhino becomes too hard, what career do these people migrate to? Uh, and we're dealing with very ruthless people out there. These guys, uh, uh, these guys are, are hardened. Uh, they will shoot uh, at rangers to try and get away from rangers. They, I mean, very recently we found a, 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 a female a rhino with a one-year-old calf that had been killed and an inch of rhino horn that had been taken off it. So when our guys leave behind their families for up to 11 months of the year and they come and spend uh, all their time protecting these animals, these animals become like their children. And to come out and find a rhino poached one day, it, it's heartbreaking for our rangers. Uh, and so we, we draw a very distinct line in the sand. And we we, we don't have a lot of time for poachers. Uh, we don't have a lot of sympathy for them. Their job is to poach, our job is to stop them. Where does responsibility lie for the deaths of these animals? Because if you listen to the West, and particularly white environmentalists, they will say it's all China's fault. If China stops the buying, then the killing stops. That's the, what is that, uh, Wild Aids line. If the buying stops, the killing stops too. But what you've described, though, is a far more complex situation here, that there's, in the, the United States has said that there are links between international terrorist groups and the poaching business. There are links with poverty. So in many ways, it's a little bit like the narcotics business, so that if one market closes, another one will open up. So my question is, I guess, is where do you think responsibility lies? Does it lie with the corrupt and poor enforcement of environmental laws in the home country? Does it lie with the purchase and the, the, the consumer in, uh, in China and Vietnam? Um, does it lie with the fact that the Chinese, the Americans, the big powers, when they meet with African countries, they never put any pressure. They don't have any conditionalities for these animals. So therefore, there's no consequence for not enforcing these laws. Tell us from your point of view, where is the responsibility lying? There's no one single place you can point a finger uh, and, and, and say that's where all the, the blame should lie. Uh, this, is a, this is a very complex war that's being fought on many fronts. And you, if you look at and basically got a um, organised crime overlapping a guerrilla war, and rhino horn and, and ivory is just another currency for these people. So whether it's uh, child prostitution, drugs, guns, this is just another form of money uh, and something else for them to exploit. And you look at uh, uh, obviously wherever a region is is maybe not so economically or politically stable, uh, things like poaching uh, become much more mainstream uh, with these types of, of, of syndicates that we're talking about. 
It's uh, look the, the the demand reduction in Asia. I think is is something that's very important and needs to be worked upon. But it's not something that's going to be won overnight. It's something that we need to be working on on a generational basis. And even to to to, to look at the the two different components of rhino horn use. One is a, is a traditional medicine, and the other one is this, this current status related good um, that's being marketed, particularly in Vietnam. If you go back, rhino horn has been used as far back as, as, as 2,000 years. One third of Vietnamese people use a form of traditional medicine uh, at least once a week. I, I've been through Hanoi, this four-story high city uh, blocks that, are, that make up an entire traditional medicine hospital. The use of traditional medicine is as deeply ingrained in, in Vietnam and China as DNA itself. So for us to think that we're going to change that overnight uh, because we stand up on a soapbox and tell them that's the wrong thing to do, I don't think uh, we, we can put all egg, our eggs in that basket. What I can tell you from my experience uh, for these animals uh, on the front lines, peace comes through the barrel of a gun. When you have well-trained rangers uh, who are well-equipped, they're well-managed, uh, and they are out there on a daily basis walking their 20 or 30 kilometres and protecting these animals, standing next to them, that works. And we sit here continuously trying to find a silver bullet as an industry, whether it's a new drone or a new piece of technology or a new piece of software that's going to analyze our intelligence, the silver bullet already exists, and it's a well-trained and well-supported ranger. And when we put these people out on the front lines, they get the job done. Uh, and that, that, that's where I come into it. That's, that's our focus as an organization. It is not, it is not the be-all and end-all. We need to be fighting this thing on, on, on many fronts. And one of those fronts, as important as what I do, is the long-term um, demand reduction in Asia. Um, I was, you know, kind of. It's it's interesting, you know, kind of to come to listen to hear to you um, speaking about this. We recently interviewed um, Andrea Krosta, um, who's a, you yeah. know, kind of another, um, you know, kind of obviously you've, you've known very well. Um, you know, kind of prominent. Um, uh, you know, kind of elephant conservationist, um, and he laid a lot of the blame um, at Africa's door. Um, talking about you know kind of a lack of political will um, and institutionalized corruption um, in Africa. Mm. Um, how do you you know kind of in 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 your work you know which includes a lot of military training, a lot of weapons training, and so on for for rangers? How do you prevent them from becoming the rangers themselves from becoming another kind of poaching slash terrorist organization? The, the best thing we've found, the best antidote for corruption is, is motivation and working with these rangers on a day-to-day basis, making them believe in what they do, making them believe that the job they do is the most important job in the world. And I believe it is. These people are protecting the heart and lungs of the planet. If you're just going to give a guy a bag of food and send him out in the bush for a month and collect him a month later, he's had no training, he hasn't got the right equipment to do his job, he's going to become a poacher. I bet you 10 out of 10 times he's going to become a poacher. But if you're working with that guy in the field yourself every day, you're training them, giving them all the equipment they need, not fancy equipment, just the right equipment, uh, and leading these men, I, I, I promise you they're going to put their life on the line. They're going to defend these animals with their own lives. I'm curious what the reaction you've had in dealing with the Americans are, because the Americans are very sensitive, probably more than any other country in the world, to the link between illicit trade and terrorism. 
And I think you've made a very yeah. compelling case between that, as you pointed out, if it's not ivory, they're, they're selling children, they're selling drugs, they're selling anything, and they're involved in the, and a lot of those proceeds do go back to, uh, to groups like Al-Shabaab and some of the others. And so have you, been a, have you had any success dealing with the Americans and getting funding, support, training, materiel, because you can make this link between the ivory poaching and terrorism? Yeah, well, not necessarily because we make the link. Uh, we definitely identify that there is a link uh, because there is one. Uh, but we, we, us as an organization, we're registered as a 501c3 uh, not-for-profit in the United States. A lot of our funding does come from America. I'm back in America, uh, New York and D.C., uh, and even Palm Beach uh, next month uh, to do a series of talks again. Uh, and I'll, I'll be doing that twice a year for the foreseeable future. But the, the Americans seem to be very much behind at least what we're doing. And I think people people have become frustrated with with all the conferences and all the talking and, and trying to do policy change. And I think people people really just want to see action uh, on, on, on the front lines. They, they need to see something that works. They need a tangible result, and they need it today. And uh, that, that story or that narrative that we have been uh, playing in the state seems to be gaining a lot of traction. People want to be able to do something right now, and they can. They can. There are organizations out there that are getting a, a lot of work done. Uh, they're going out there on the front lines, not doing anything fancy. They're just getting the job done. And I think ultimately that's – people are tired. Hey? People are – particularly with the Rhino Wars, we're seven years into a losing war. People, people want to see results. Um, you, I was, you know, kind of what, what in South Africa, the what we're around. One of the big debates around um, around poaching is the possible use of drones um, to to try to try and um, you know kind of track down poachers. Where do you fall on on this this debate? Okay, drone. I mean, drones. Drones revolutionised warfare in a way that we haven't seen since the early 1980s, and that was with the, the introduction of, of night vision. And it's very seldom that you'll see a, a revolution in warfare like that. But uh, a, a drone deserves a very healthy degree of skepticism. It's not a silver bullet. Uh, a, a drone is a tool in the box. There's no point. There's no point having a drone unless you've got the first ninety percent right. And the first ninety percent right is making sure you've got motivated rangers who have vehicles, who have the right training, who have the right boots, the right uniform. They know what they're doing because if you've got going to send a drone out and it's going to bring back real-time information, you pick up a problem fifty kilometres away, but you don't have a road network or a, a trained reaction unit that can go out there and deal with the problem, and you've just wasted your money. So my, 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 my advice to anybody uh, who, who's looking to support conservation is help the people on the ground get the first 90% right, the first basics. And I, I, I guarantee you, you get most of that right, most of the problems are going to be solved. The biggest, the biggest lacking thing we have in the industry is motivated rangers. When these people are motivated, they'll do the job. You've just got to find a way to motivate it. What motivates these guys to go out in the field every day, walk 30 kilometres and risk their life? Um, and what have, what have you found, you know, in your training of them, what have you found actually motivates them? What, what works? As I, I mean, as I, as I said before, making them believe that what they do is the most important thing in the world. You've just got to spend time with these guys, face-to-face -face management, giving them all the right basic and tactical training, the right equipment, uh, just, 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 spending time with them and not just sending them out in the bush and making them uh, think that they've been forgotten. You've got to appreciate these guys. You've got to understand what they're doing. They're one of the, they're one of the least 
least appreciated and underpaid groups of people in this in this world, and we're asking them to do one of the most important jobs in the world. We're asking them to defend the heart and lungs of the planet. Is there more, is there a more important job out there? And when when you bring that to to different constituencies, either from your funders or you know other activists, what's the response that you get? You know, in terms of saying, listen, we need your money. And we need your political support in order to do this. And I guess this is kind of wraps up, you know, part of my my last question as well is that if if you had the chance to speak with you know Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang or Chinese President Xi Jinping, who now has incredible influence in Africa, um, mm. what would you tell them? I would. I think you hit the nail on the head earlier uh, in this interview when when you spoke about political will and and what Andrea had said. We work with the Botswana government, and their military is deployed, and one of their primary mandates is wildlife conservation. They have the mandate. They have the willingness from the top down, and you have a very very small and remote poaching problem in that country, and it is a, an isolation of success uh, in the region on the continent. The political will is there. And my my request or, or my message to, to anybody out there that, that is in a position to exercise some form of, of influence is that if we can get the political will uh, to look after these animals, to prioritize conservation up there with all the other things that, that we look at, uh, we can get on top of this problem. Uh, the, the flip side of that is these animals continue to, continue to be taken and we start to lose the, the flow on benefits into the continent through tourism uh, and other, other sources of income. And when that happens, uh, people are going to start losing jobs. The flow on effect, the snowball effect from that is going to be significant. Damien Mander is the founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Uh, he works across southern Africa uh, in the fight to protect both rhinos and elephants uh, against poachers and and really, as, he, as we talked about today, the deeper kind of issues that it raises in terms of terrorism, illegal activity and whatnot. Um, listen, at, what we like to do at the end of every show is kind of connect our listeners with the different people that we speak with. If people want to find out more about the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, either just to follow what you're doing, maybe to donate and to kind of stay on top of uh, your speeches and some of the events that you're doing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Yeah, please. They could just get onto our website at www.iapf.org. That's International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Or they can just type that into Google and they'll be able to find us there. My email, Damien, D-A-M-I-E-N, at iapf.org. Send through any questions, uh, any requests, and I'll, I'll help as best I can. You know, Cobus, you and I have been covering this issue for at least six years now since we started this show, and I would say that this is, you know, what Damien's doing, and, and Damien himself is probably one of the most interesting characters uh, in the whole discussion, and certainly brings a very unique perspective on this, uh, particularly with relating to the militarization of the fight to protect the animals, and also this idea that it's far more complicated than what we hear uh, from Western environmentalists. So that's been uh, really refreshing to hear and to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Damien. Gentlemen, thank you very much for the time. And Cobus, if people want to follow you and stay in touch with what you're doing, what's the best way to, to get in contact? Um, you'll see us. Uh, you'll see me on our Facebook page. Um, that's facebook.com/slash/China-Africa-project, and we run this, this kind of twenty-four hour stream of of aggregated China-Africa news news items. So, if you want a constant kind of drip feed of of new China-Africa news, that's the place to go. 
I'm, I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And we have a fantastic email newsletter that goes out every Monday uh, with about four or five articles. So if this constant stri- drip that Cobus uh, talked about on Facebook is a little too much for you, this email is ideal. Just go to either our Facebook page or our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com and you can sign up for that email. And if you want to follow this podcast, we have a brand new URL from, uh, from Apple. Thank you, Apple. So grateful to Apple iTunes.com slash China Africa podcast. That's a very rare website address. Once again, that's iTunes.com slash China Africa podcast. And you can subscribe to us right there on iTunes. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>